Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Reformed Meditations. I'm Lee, and we're back again in Hebrews, the very end of chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. I have the trusty Legacy Standard Bible out here, so let's go ahead and read. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, He's able to come to help those who are tempted. Now, because verse 14 starts with the word, therefore, we kind of have to backtrack a little bit, and we're going to be building on what has been written prior to this. So in verse 13, we have two Old Testament citations, and the last one is, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So we're talking about that family language, and you can check out the last episode um, where we talk about that a little bit more in depth. But uh, we have this idea of children of God in this uh, citation, and it's been brought into this sermon. And so the preacher's building on that. Therefore, since those children, the children of God, since the children share in flesh and blood, so why is flesh and blood such an important thing, important enough to take the time to speak about it here. We have to remember at this period of history, and even a little bit to our current day now, but that's another topic for another time, Gnosticism was sort of ruling at that time. A lot of people were into the idea of Gnosticism, which pits the spiritual against the physical, where the more physical something is, the more sinful it is. And in order to become more spiritual, you have to cast off physical things. Uh, you have to acquire special secret knowledge and, and all these kinds of things. So the preacher here is highlighting the importance of flesh and blood, the epitome of physical reality. So we have here actually a pretty efficient denial of that Gnostic idea. In fact, the Gnostics would even go so far as to deny the humanity of Jesus because Jesus being God, in their estimation, he would never stoop so low as to actually become a human being. Well, it's actually the very opposite of what they think. Jesus certainly was very humble in leaving his place of honor and coming in the flesh uh, to live uh, the righteous life that we should have lived. And he did it for a purpose, and we're going to talk about that purpose here quickly. But I wanted to just highlight that this propitiation that's being talked about here, this offering to take away the wrath of God, hinges on the fact that Jesus came in the flesh with blood, just like the people that he was coming to save. He became like us. He came in our form to save us. So we share in flesh and blood. Like that's the thing that we have in common across all of humanity. No matter what color our skin is or what color our hair is or how tall or how short, 
uh, all these kinds of things, the, the thing we have all in common is that we all have a body. We all are flesh and blood. So we share in that, and so he himself likewise also partook of the same, the very same. It, it wasn't a special human body, uh, something that's never existed before. He had an ordinary human body that he was born in, ordinary flesh, ordinary blood, except that his was not affected by sin the way that ours are, living under the curse. He obviously wasn't subject to the curse, but he still had the marks of flesh and blood that we have. You know, a head, a torso, arms and legs, these kinds of things. So we can now say that God does have a body. God is spirit, right? That's that's what's taught in John 4, 24. But the second person of the Trinity has a body. Even still to this day, he arose bodily after completing the work that he was sent on earth to do. And this was a spiritual work. It was not a mere physical work. So we're getting the importance here in the beginning of the verse of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh and lived a human life. But the work that he was doing and the reason that he partook of flesh and blood in the second half of verse 14 here, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, namely Satan. Obviously, we have some shorthand here because we know that Jesus didn't only die. Yes, he did die in the flesh. His body laid in a tomb for three days, but he was to rise and work as well. So his his death and his resurrection render Satan's death grip on the human soul powerless. That's what we're really talking about here. And who is the devil? What is he like? Elsewhere in Scripture... The devil is called a liar in John 8, deceiver in 2 Corinthians 2, destroyer in John 10, tempter in Matthew 4. He's completely opposed to Yahweh and his work, but yet is also completely at his mercy and can only do what he does by the allowance of God. So that those who are in Christ obviously are no longer under the dominion of Satan. Uh, once we've entered the federal headship of Christ uh, upon salvation, we're no longer under Adam's federal headship and subject to the tyranny of Satan. Now, that doesn't mean that we could never be tempted. That doesn't mean that we are completely sinless. It means that Satan isn't our master anymore. It means that the Christian has acknowledged the lordship of Christ over all things and glories in the fact that he or she has been adopted uh, and covered by the blood of Christ, forgiven of his or her sins, and looks forward to a human existence of communion with God and looking forward ultimately to spending eternity in the presence of his or her Savior. The work of Christ that guarantees that is the same work that has made Satan powerless over God's people. If we move to the next verse, we see one of the ways that that work is borne out in the life of the Christian, namely that the Christian is free who formerly had been subject to the slavery of the fear of death. Now, I don't know about you, but I've noticed in the last couple years, there are so many people who are openly petrified of the idea of death. Now, I don't know about you, but I've noticed in the last couple years that people truly are petrified of death to the point where they're willing to practically do anything, say anything, 
listen to anyone, give up anything in order to have a chance to live longer or even, I think, in the back of their mind to live forever. We have to remember that death is inevitable for every human person. One in one people die eventually. It's an inescapable fact of life. And no matter what creed you may hold to, whether you're a Christian or uh, religious or not religious, every person is going to die. Every person will have to grapple with that idea. And some people truly struggle with that, which I understand. I don't cast judgment on people who have difficulty there because death is a scary thing because we don't know what it's like until it's (laughs) happened to us. We don't know what to expect. And the worst part of it is that we know whether we will admit it out loud or not. We know that there's something on the other side of our earthly life and we run the risk of it being a bad time, (laughs) to put it bluntly. For the Christian, we don't need to fear death. In fact, this verse says we've been set free from the fear of death, um, and we're subject to slavery all our lives. Christ has set us free from that fear of death. In 1 Corinthians 15.54, it says pretty plainly, death has been swallowed up in victory. Paul also says to live is Christ and to die is gain. So faith in Christ certainly can overcome any fear of death that we have. Now, why is that? It's not just some mere mental trick, something we just have to tell ourselves. It's about having confidence. It's about having faith, not in ourselves, not in a potential for us to have a lack of worry by thinking the right thoughts or saying the right words. It's confidence in Christ, that Christ is powerful enough not only to remove our sins from us and to forgive us, but also to hold on to us in his grace, to preserve our salvation, to guide us down the path of sanctification and eventually leading to glorification. This is the golden chain of redemption from Romans 8. I'll actually read it here from Romans 8. Um, Actually, I'll start Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. First notice there, we get the reference to brothers. We're going to come back to that in in Hebrews in a little bit. So he is the firstborn among many brothers, although obviously he's uncreated because he's God. But when it comes to the family of God, we would not be in the family of God if it weren't for our elder brother uh, with whom we are co-heir, Jesus Christ. But notice there near the end uh, in verse 30, it says, uh, those whom he called, he also justified. So that's, that's in salvation right there. That's the beginning we're justified, we're declared righteous, even though we are in and of ourselves unrighteous because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. 
So we've been justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Obviously, I will speak for myself, but I'm one of very many. I am not glorified right now. I'm still very much plagued by sin, uh, still growing in my sanctification and have much more time to go. Um, So what are we talking about when we say glorified? Well, this is obviously the eternal state. This is on the other side of this earthly life, uh, under the curse, uh, waiting for the fulfillment of the kingdom to come in all of its fullness. So we're, we're getting a jump in this golden chain from the life of the justified Christian to future glorification. And because all of these steps are certain, these are the work of God and God cannot be uh, thwarted, his work can't be undone, that we who are justified now can be just as sure about our glorification, our eternal state in the presence of God, as we can be about our justification in the here and now. So to cycle back to the idea of no fear in death for the Christian, that's the ground of it, because we can have assurance of our faith now We can confidently say, as a Christian, I have been forgiven of my sins. They've been removed from me. The righteousness of Christ has been given to me by faith, not by any work of my own. And because of that, I now hold one of many promises being that I will spend eternity with God, with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit, and with the entirety of God's people in their resurrection. So because we know how the story ends, that fear, the uncertainty, the fear of the uncertainty of what comes after death is wiped away. If we truly take the time to read the scriptures, understand what it says about this topic, and let that burrow into our hearts, let it travel from our mind into our heart, that sting of death really does come out. It doesn't make death any less sad than it is, any more heartbreaking to lose the people we love. It's undoubtedly sad to say goodbye to those people. Um, It will be sad for the people around us when we ourselves die eventually. But that doesn't mean that we should fear that those who have made a profession of Christ and people that we have the privilege of either going to church with or knowing in other capacities that we just say, this is a precious brother or sister in Christ, we don't have to worry about where they're going because they, like us, are beneficiaries of God's promises, one of them being that eternal state, that glorified state. Now notice in the next verse, we're back to that subject of angels again that we started the book with. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham, right? Jesus didn't become an angel, and we've talked about this. You can go back to the prior episodes, uh, the first episodes in the Hebrew series. Jesus didn't become an angel. He's a God. He's already higher than an angel, but he stooped down further than angels and became a man to help men, right, to save mankind, to save men and women. We're going to talk very soon about his high priestly role. He is not the high priest of angels. He's the great high priest 
for humanity, for men and women, referred here as the seed of Abraham. Now, we have to remember, uh, because that's a, a title that had been used in the past only of people from a Jewish lineage, that they could call Abraham their father, right? The uh, Pharisees talked about this, almost as if it was it was their justification that Abraham was our father. You know, they could trace their family lineage back and eventually reach Abraham. But these are children of Abraham according to the spirit, not necessarily according to the flesh. Although, obviously, you can be both. Uh, you There are certainly so many Jewish Christians who can truly say that they are not only Abraham's physical children, although obviously removed from him by a, a pretty large span of time, but also his spiritual children because those who believe in Christ are offspring of Abraham according to the Spirit. Paul says pretty plainly in Romans 9, and, and he's obviously he's Jewish, uh, Romans 9 uh, verse 6 but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed, but through Isaac your seed shall be named. That is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. So this children of the promise obviously is the promise of salvation. So we can say, any of us, no matter what our ethnicity may be, what part of the world we're from, if we are in Christ, we are not only children of God, but we can think of ourselves as children of, of Abraham, children in the faith, that we can count Abraham and the uh, the patriarchs of Scripture, uh, so many of those that we see in, in the record of Scripture who believed Old Testament and New Testament, um, that they are our ancestors of the faith, so to speak, that there is this broad and large family of faith, so many of whom have gone before us, many of whom I'm sure are, are to come after us. So now having said all this, we'll go to verse 17. Therefore, building on top of all of this that we've been talking about, therefore he, being Christ, had to be made like his brothers in all things. Remember, we even got that brother's language back in Romans 8, talking about that golden chain of redemption, that he is our brother. We have that connection with him. He had to be made like his brothers, we who believe in him in all things, so that, so there's a purpose for that. It's not just a random thing. There's a purpose, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. So think about that for a second, that you and I, that we have the privilege of being brothers and sisters of Christ. There's no religion in the world where you can say that God is your brother. And that's not to make us great. It's to show the the humble authority of God, his, his power to make us brothers, not for us to earn that that place, to earn that right to say that, but that he went all the way, that he came down to us and made that possible. Not only possible, made it sure for us who've received it. 
not only our brother, but our brother is also our great high priest. So now if you, we could go back and really fall down a rabbit hole on this subject of high priest, but suffice to say, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there were many priests. In fact, the whole system required a lot of priests, and they were doing hard labor. You know, they were killing animals for sacrifice all the day long. They had a huge list of responsibilities to take care of, um, but there would be one high priest over it all, overseeing everything. And the high priest would go, and it was his responsibility to go on the Day of Atonement once every year. Not only, he first he would make atonement for his sins, and then once he had made that sacrifice, would go into the Holy of Holies within first the tabernacle and then later the temple after Solomon, and then make sacrifice for the sins of the entire people. Uh, in the in the nation of Israel. So this is the model that we're talking about here, but Jesus gets called not just a high priest, but the great high priest. Now there's something about this priestly system uh, that, and it's actually laid out in scripture, they had to retire when they were 50 years old. And I'm pretty sure there's a practical reason for that, because like I said, they're practically working as butchers. Uh, they'd be slicing open animals and uh, putting uh, animal organs on the altar and burning them, or sometimes putting the entire animal on the altar and burning it as a, as a burnt offering. It's very hard work. And in God's mercy, he would require them to retire before they had totally worn their bodies out. And so they would retire at 50. We have a great high priest who is never going to retire, and in fact has never retired, so since his ascension, he's been at the right hand of the Father advocating for his people, and he's going to do that forever. He'll still be at God's right hand, even at the end when the church is before him in glory. He will still be at the right hand of God the Father, but he's not going to be making any more sacrifices. In fact, he made one sacrifice, and that of himself for all of his people, for all of eternity. So those priests had to be continually making sacrifices for their own sins and for the sins of the people that would come to the tabernacle or the temple, including on the Day of Atonement with the work of the high priest. Well, according to Christ, the great high priest, only one sacrifice had to be made for all time, and that was of Jesus himself on the cross. This is what's referred to in verse 17 here as to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because according to the sacrificial system, propitiation had to be made over and over and over again. Propitiation is a sacrifice that gains the goodwill of God. Expiation is when sins are removed, but Christ did that as well. But the word propitiation is used here because because of the sins of the people, God is disposed against sin with his judgment. Right? God brings judgment on sin. He's a just God, and he will not clear the guilty. In the work of Christ, our great high priest, he made propitiation for our sins who believe in him. In fact, that's why we believe in him. Uh, he has bought the goodwill of God for us even though we are sinners like the rest of mankind. 
So what makes the difference? Because as we said in the golden chain of redemption, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that we were to be saved. Those of us who believe have been set forth from the foundation of the world for faith, to believe, and to be forgiven of our sins. All that was to be accomplished through Christ, through his propitiatory work. So I hope that makes sense. That's one of those big words, but a really important word for understanding what Christ has done for us. And then verse 18, we're getting to another aspect of Jesus' work for his people. So he's made propitiation for the sins of the people. He's brought God's favor to us uh, by his work, not by our work. And he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. He's able to come to the help of those who are tempted. So the temptation of Jesus is also equally important because we know that Jesus is sinless, that he lived a life on earth in which he committed no sin, the only man to have ever lived such a life. But he was tempted. In fact, we get two different explanations of his temptation directly by Satan in the wilderness. But we know that that's not the only time that Jesus would have been tempted. But that is a very significant story in the New Testament because Jesus is in isolation. He has no food. He has no water. He's being confronted directly by Satan and not by some other uh, means, some other temptation. It's, it's direct attack from the devil himself. Why is that important? Because we live a life of near constant temptation, especially it seems like in our times right now. And in our flesh, we're predisposed to cave to every sinful temptation that comes to us. Jesus has intimate personal knowledge of that because he lived under temptation and he succeeded over temptation and he is sinless. That makes him obviously a perfect mediator for us, a perfect helper, because in our hour of need, when we're being tempted and fear caving into it, committing sin against the holy God, our sanctifying God, the God who saved us, we can go to Christ in prayer and beg, please help me uh, with this temptation, and he will come to our help, uh, because he knows intimately what temptation is. These are just two aspects of Jesus' high priestly work for us, but I think these are two really important aspects of Jesus' work for his people. That we have a high priest who died, who himself was the sacrifice, and yet lives and lives eternally and will not be retiring anytime soon from his important work of advocating for his people. So this dying high priest will never be replaced, right? There's no one that can do what Christ has done and continues to do even now in heaven at this very moment. That's a big subject of praise. And part of why we meditate is to find in the text of Scripture something to praise God for. Uh, Another thing would be something to repent of. And maybe if you're a Christian listening to this and you think to yourself that maybe you fear death a little more than you should, that's a great thing to repent of. Go to the throne of grace now and ask for help in seeing death biblically, seeing death according to faith. 
and and ask for assurance uh, of your salvation, assurance of your final state. It's easy enough to have blind spots in our faith, and when we come to them, we can condemn ourselves if we're not careful. Uh, but there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. So um, if, if you have a lack of faith somewhere, go to the throne of grace and ask for help. And God, your Father, is pleased to answer that prayer. Another aspect of application from our meditations is finding something to, is to thank God for, something that inspires us to thanksgiving. I would say, as I've studied this passage, to, to be thankful for the grace of God and His mercy to us in supplying us Christ as our Savior and also as our great high priest, that He completely fulfills office for eternity. That's a huge concept to take in, uh, but something that we should be very thankful for. So I hope this uh, episode has been helpful uh, and encouraging. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ref Meditations, R-E-F Meditations. Uh, you can also email directly at reformedmeditations at gmail.com. All those contact points are in the show notes, uh, but you should also check out the show notes for the complete list of Bar Network podcasts uh, because this is a proud Bar Network podcast. Uh, so happy to be in that uh, family uh, of podcasts uh, dedicated to glorifying Christ through audio content. So you really should go check out the complete offerings of the network. Uh, you will not be disappointed. And uh, also there's a link to uh, some excellent meme pages under the banner of the Exiled House of Meme Lords. So you can get uh, some high quality podcast material and then also get some high quality reformed giggles as well online. So uh, what a time to be alive. Um, so thank you very much for listening. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.